Chapter 44 of The Scalp Hunters. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Daniel Noonan. The Scalp Hunters by Thomas Maine Reed. The Flag of Truce. They might have spared themselves the pains. That agony was already felt, but indeed a scene followed that caused us to suffer afresh. Up to this moment, we had not been recognized by those near and dear to us. The distance had been too great for the naked eye, and our browned faces and travel-stained habiliments were of themselves a disguise. But the instincts of love are quick and keen, and the eyes of my betrothed were upon me. I saw her start forward. I heard the agonized scream. A pair of snow-white arms were extended, and she sank, fainting, upon the cliff. At the same instant, Madame Seguin had recognized the chief, and had called him by name. Seguin shouted to her in reply, and cautioned her in tones of entreaty to remain patient and silent. Several of the other females, all young and handsome, had recognized their lovers and brothers, and a scene followed that was painful to witness. But my eyes were fixed upon her. I saw that she recovered from her swoon. I saw the savage in hussar trappings dismount, and lifting her in his arms, carry her back upon the prairie. I followed them with impotent gaze. I saw that he was paying her kind attentions, and I almost thanked him, though I knew it was but the selfish gallantry of the lover. In a short while he rose to her feet again, and rushed back towards the barranca. I heard my name uttered across the ravine. Hers was echoed back but at the moment both mother and daughter were surrounded by their guards and carried back. Meanwhile, the white flag had been got ready, and Seguin, holding it aloft, stood out in front. We remained silent, watching with eager glances for the answer. There was a movement among the clustered Indians. We heard their voices in earnest talk, and saw that something was going on in their midst. Presently, a tall, fine-looking man came out from the crowd, holding an object in his left hand of a white color. It was a bleached fawn skin. In his right hand he carried a lance. We saw him place the fawn skin on the blade of the lance and stand forward holding it aloft. Our signal of peace was answered. Silence, men! cried Seguin, speaking to the hunters. And then, raising his voice, he called aloud in the Indian language. Navajos, you know whom we are. We have passed through your country and visited your head town. Our object was to search for our dear relatives, who we knew were captives in your land. Some we have recovered, but there are many others we could not find. That these might be restored to us in time, we have taken hostages, as you see. We might have brought away many more, but these we considered enough. We have not burned your town. We have not harmed your wives, your daughters, nor your children. With the exception of these, our prisoners, you will find all as you left them. A murmur ran through the ranks of the Indians. It was a murmur of satisfaction. They had been under the full belief that their town was destroyed and their women massacred, 
and the words of Seguin, therefore, produced a singular effect. We could hear joyful exclamations and phrases interchanged among the warriors. Silence was again restored, and Seguin continued. We see that you have been in our country. You have made captives as well as we. You are red men. Red men can feel for their kindred as well as white men. We know this, and for that reason I have raised the banner of peace, that each may restore to the other his own. It will please the Great Spirit, and will give satisfaction to both of us, for that which you hold is of most value to us, and that which we have is dear only to you. Navajos, I have spoken. I await your answer. When Seguin had ended, the warriors gathered around the head chief, and we could see that an earnest debate was going on amongst them. It was plain there were dissenting voices, but the debate was soon over, and the head chief, stepping forward, gave some instructions to the man who held the flag. The latter, in a loud voice, replied to Seguin's speech as follows. White chief, you have spoken well, and your words have been weighed by our warriors. You ask nothing more than what is just and fair. It would please the Great Spirit and satisfy us to exchange our captives. But how can we tell that your words are true? You say that you have not burned our town nor harmed our women and children. How can we know that this is true? Our town is far off. So are our women, if they still be alive. We cannot ask them. We have only your word. It is not enough. Seguin had already anticipated this difficulty, and had ordered one of our captives, an intelligent lad, to be brought forward. The boy at this moment appeared by his side. Question him! shouted he, pointing to the captive lad. And why may we not question our brother, the chief Dacoma? The lad is young. He may not understand us. The chief could assure us better. Dacoma was not with us at the town. He knows not what was done there. Let Dacoma answer that. Brother, replied Seguin, you are wrongly suspicious, but you shall have his answer. And he addressed some words to the Navajo chief, who sat near him upon the ground. The question was then put directly to Tacoma by the speaker on the other side. The proud Indian, who seemed exasperated with the humiliating situation in which he was placed, with an angry wave of his hand and a short ejaculation, answered in the negative. Now, brother, proceeded Seguin, you see I have spoken truly. Ask the lad what you first proposed. The boy was then interrogated as to whether we had burned the town or harmed the women and children. To these two questions, he also returned a negative answer. Well, brother, said Seguin, are you satisfied? For a long time, there was no reply. The warriors were again gathered in council and gesticulating with earnestness and energy. We could see that there was a party opposed to pacific measures who were evidently counseling the others to try the fortunes of a battle. These were the younger braves, 
and I observed that he in the Hussar costume, who, as Rube informed us, was the son of the head chief, appeared to be the leader of this party. Had not the head chief been so deeply interested in the result, the counsels of these might have carried, for the warriors well knew the scorn that would await them among neighboring tribes should they return without captives. Besides, there were numbers who felt another sort of interest in detaining them. They had looked upon the daughters of the Del Norte and saw that they were fair. But the counsels of the older men at length prevailed, and the spokesman replied, The Navajo warriors have considered what they have heard. They believe that the white chief has spoken the truth, and they agree to exchange their prisoners. That this may be done in a proper and becoming manner. They propose that twenty warriors be chosen on each side, that these warriors may lay down their arms on the prairie in presence of all, that they shall then conduct their captives to the crossing of the Barranca by the mine, and there settle the terms of their exchange. That all the others on both sides shall remain where they now are, until the unarmed warriors have got back with the exchange prisoners, that the white banners shall then be struck, and both sides be freed from the treaty. These are the words of the Navajo warriors. It was some time before Seguin could reply to this proposal. It seemed fair enough, but yet there was a manner about it that led us to suspect some design, and we paused a moment to consider it. The concluding terms intimated an intention on the part of the enemy of making an attempt to retake their captives, but we cared little for this, provided we could once get them on our side of the Barranca. It was very proper that the prisoners should be conducted to the place of exchange by unarmed men, and twenty was a proper number. But Seguin well knew how the Navajos would interpret the word unarmed, and several of the hunters were cautioned in an undertone to stray into the bushes and conceal their knives and pistols under the flaps of their hunting shirts. We thought that we observed a similar maneuver going on upon the bank with the tomahawks of our adversaries. We could make but little objection to the terms proposed, and as Seguin knew that time saved was an important object, he hastened to accept them. As soon as this was announced to the Navajos, twenty men, already chosen, no doubt, stepped out into the open prairie, and striking their lances into the ground, rested against them with their bows, quivers, and shields. We saw no tomahawks, and we knew that every Navajo carries this weapon. They all had their means of concealing them about their persons, for most of them were dressed in the garb of civilized life in the plundered habiliments of the rancho and hacienda. We cared little, as we, too, were sufficiently armed. We saw that the party selected were men of powerful strength. In fact, they were the picked warriors of the tribe. Ours were similarly chosen. Among them were El Sol and Gari, Rube and the bullfighter Sanchez. Seguin and I were of the number. Most of the trappers, with a few Delaware Indians, completed the complement. The twenty were soon selected, and stepping out on the open ground, as the Navajos had done, we piled our rifles in the presence of the enemy. Our captives were then mounted and made ready for starting. The queen and the Mexican girls were brought forward among the rest. This last was a piece of strategy on the part of Seguin. He knew that we had captives enough to exchange one for one, without these. But he saw, as we all did, that to leave the queen behind would interrupt the negotiation and perhaps put an end to it altogether. He had resolved, therefore, on taking her along, trusting that he could better negotiate for her on the ground. 
Failing this, there would be but one appeal, to arms, and he knew that our party was well prepared for that alternative. Both sides were at length ready, and at a signal commenced riding down the Barranca in the direction of the mine. The rest of the two bands remained eyeing each other across the gulf with glances of mistrust and hatred. Neither party could move without the other seeing it, for the plains in which they were, though on opposite sides of the Barranca, were but segments of the same horizontal plateau. A horseman proceeding from either party could have been seen by the others to a distance of many miles. The flags of truce were still waving, their spears stuck into the ground, but each of the hostile bands held their horses saddled and bridled, ready to mount at the first movement of the other. End of chapter 44, The Flag of Truce Recording by Daniel Noonan